What a joy to be uh, back with you all. The Lord's Day, every Lord's Day is a special day, but today is special because we're still alive and uh, we can gather and sing these songs and now we have an opportunity to sit under God's Word. So I am thankful for you, thankful for this church, thankful for today, which is really a historic day for us as we welcome Scott Hummer onto the elder team and officially affirm him as another pastor here at Grace Church Monterey Bay. So I'm excited about that. If you um, did not catch those announcements, we have a members meeting tonight, 5.30. We'd love for you to be there. If you are a member in process, meaning you've talked to us and have maybe filled out an application online, um, we'd like to welcome you just to come take a, a glance at what to expect as you become a member at our church. But as we think about church and healthy churches this week, I know that we were going to bring Scott onto the team. And so what I wanted to do was do a little bit of research and then bring that to you this morning. And so what I did was I typed in my Google search bar this week, how to assess a healthy church. I've met some of you this morning. This is your first time you walked into a church building. Hopefully you were greeted warmly and you've enjoyed your time thus far. But as you're thinking about maybe coming again or going to a different church, what are some of the questions that you ask to really ascertain whether or not a church is healthy or not? Well, let me tell you what I discovered. The first thing that popped up was crosswalk.com, and they gave six indicators of a healthy church. Here they are. They said healthy churches have active members and attendees of all ages. That was number one. Healthy churches encourage members to use their spiritual gifts. Healthy churches have a strong sense of community. Healthy churches are adaptable and open to change. Healthy churches discuss tough topics while maintaining mutual respect. Healthy churches are supported by sufficient offerings. That was their top six. Then I go down to the next Google Entry, and it is eight non-numerical ways to assess the healthy church. And as I read through those, I got to the bottom of that, and then there was a link that led me to 28 non-numerical signs of a healthy church. Let me just read these for you. This is actually now Christianity Today. People care more about doing ministry than having a title. Okay, there's uh, more ministry teams than committees. Uh, Departments cooperate with one another. The church cooperates with other churches, number four. Number five, the church looks like the neighborhood demographically. The church goes into the neighborhood. The front rows are as full as the back rows. (laughs) The bulletin isn't just an internal event. Guests feel welcome. Volunteerism is high. Ministry ideas bubble up. New ideas are embraced. New leadership is embraced. Long-term leadership is respected. The energy and passion of the youth is celebrated. The wisdom and patience of the older saints is honored. The eternal truths of the Bible are taught and lived. Worship is more than just singing. People like bringing their friends. Congregation members love each other. Congregation members like each other. They wanted to make a distinction between love and like, which I think is great. People are being saved. People are being discipled. People are being sent out into ministry. It's a good place to ask hard questions. People pray a lot. Failure is not fatal. And people are more excited about the future than the past. 
And as you evaluate all of those things, there's many things in there that you say yes and amen. That's great. A lot of that stuff is biblical. But as I read that article and others from growhealthychurch.com and how to assess a healthy church from Lifeway Research and Outreach Magazine and on and on and on it goes, there was something that was missing. In every single thing that I read, there was a peculiar absence of three words, elder, pastor, overseer. Apparently, when people think about a healthy church, that's not the first thing that comes to mind. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us that one of the ways that Jesus manifests both his rule and his care for the church is when he gives his church pastors, teachers. You see, of prime importance to the health and well-being of the church, it really boils down to just two things. There are a lot of other things that are helpful, but these two things are essential. And you say, Don, what, what are those two things? That what's preached in the pulpit is the word of God, and that the people who are leading the church are godly men. Personal, passionate pleading from God's word, not just information dumping, but it's persuasion that this is what God's word has for us. I think that's primary. But at a close second, is always going to be God-appointed, God-ordained, biblical eldership to lead a church. I like what Kevin DeYoung says about expository preaching and biblical leadership. He says this, these two are necessary, catch this, but not sufficient conditions for church vitality. You have to have this in place, meaning it's necessary, but just having this in place does not guarantee your success. It is not sufficient by itself. He said none of the real issues can be properly and biblically addressed unless there is a biblical understanding of church leadership. Listen, as a church, we want to be healthy here, but the way that we assess health is maybe different than a lot of other people as they assess health. They usually boil it down to three Bs. You know what the three Bs are? The building, the budget, and you can say the bodies in the pews. And those are no doubt important, but listen, we're not interested in just getting bigger and bigger and bigger because bigger doesn't mean health. In fact, you can get bigger and bigger and bigger and you actually become badder and badder and badder. Excuse the poor English. <laughs> but as members here at Grace Church Monterey Bay, our desire is to grow in godliness. We want to grow in grace. We want to grow in maturity. We want to grow in discipleship. And in order to do that effectively, we need to get back to the basics of what makes a healthy church, and you have to talk about the role that the elder plays in the church. God has given lots of instruction about church leadership, but the primary place that he's laid this out for us is in what's called the pastoral epistles. First and Second Timothy and Titus. So if you have your Bible, grab that, and you want to turn to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 here is the older, wiser, godlier Paul speaking to his protege. He's already addressed Timothy in his two letters, and now Titus. And he tells them 
how to bring about health in the church. You know, Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus. Well, Titus is on the island of Crete. And when you think about Crete and the situation there, Titus is basically dropped off, evangelizes, people believe the word, he plants a church, and then Paul's first order of instruction is to have him appoint elders. And you say, why is that so important? Because the people in Crete are facing lots of immorality. You see, Crete is not much different than California, where there's lots of liberalism, lots of syncretism, lots of religiosity, but not a true understanding of Christianity. And if Crete the Cretan churches are to survive, then it needs healthy leadership. And so Paul says, I want you to appoint elders in every church. Again, we say, why, Paul? Why is this the major emphasis? Because godly leaders with Christ-like character, godly leaders with Christ-like character help cultivate godliness in Christians. And if we're going to be the kind of people, if we're going to be the kind of church that adorns the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then we need to have godly elders here at Grace. Let's read Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Here's God's word for us. Paul says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if a man is beyond reproach, the husband of one wife, having faithful children who are not accused of dissipation or rebellious. For the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid or dishonest gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to reprove those who contradict. Oh, Father, would you please help us as we examine this text to understand your word, to have the right interpretation, to obey this truth, and to celebrate it here in our midst today as we bring on Scott. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, listen, the main point of Titus 1, 5 through 9 teaches us that elders are to be an example in home life and personal character, which enhances their promotion of sound teaching and refutation of error. You say, Dom, some of these main ideas are getting so long. It is hard to encapsulate all of the truth but I think this is what it boils down to. The elders must be an example. In their home life, that's where it starts, in their personal character. And what that does is it enhances their promotion of sound teaching and the refutation of error. You say, why did Jesus give elders to the church? Well, because this is where discipleship takes place. This is where direction is given for holy living. This is where doctrine is upheld. And so the pastor, the elder, the overseer, their job, their primary responsibility, the reason why they exist here in the church context is to tend, to lead, and to feed. 
That's why God has given us pastors, elders. And so we just want to walk through this text, and our outline is going to be real simple. We're going to start with why the church needs elders there in 1.5. This is the divine appointment. Then we're going to look at what an elder is, also in 1.5, his office and function, who an elder is and who an elder is not in verses 6 through 8, that is his character, and then what an elder does in verse 9, that is his work. And we're going to do our best to to make our way through. Let's start here in verse 5, why the church needs elders. Paul writes, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Again, Titus is left there in Crete, but he's left there for a specific purpose. And that purpose is to establish elder leadership. I love this verb here, set in order. It's the only time that this word is used in the New Testament. And it's a compound word. And there's a prefix. Actually, there's two. There's epi and dia, which intensify the meaning of the next word, which is ortheo, to to make straight, to make erect, to, to make upright. And so you know what an orthodontist is. He takes your crooked and messed up teeth and tries to straighten them out. An orthodontist and an orthopedist who sets broken bones. Paul wants Titus to be the spiritual doctor there in Crete and to set things right, to put things in order, to make sure that it is established and reformed if need be. The NIV translates this, that you might straighten out what is left unfinished. The New Living Translation says that you complete our work by appointing elders. You see, Titus is to put in order what remains. There's believers, people who have been converted and confessed and who are living for Jesus. But Paul says that is not enough. What we need is elders who can now give direction. You see, the church is deficient, even defective, without elders. And Paul uses a word here that he uses later on in Titus 3.13 when he says, to diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking. And what Paul is communicating is that these brothers who are going to be leaving, they need everything as they move on their journey. And in the same way, the church needs everything. And what is that everything? Elders, leaders. One last thought as we leave verse 5, the command from Paul to Titus is what we call in the middle voice, which means that Titus has to take it upon himself. It's a reflexive verb. He has to personally attend to this process of appointing elders. And I'll just say that the establishment of orthodoxy in a church, the establishment of orthodoxy in the Cretan churches was Titus's divine responsibility. And Paul gives him with urgency the command to be the spiritual orthopedist there at that church. Now, look there. It says that he is to appoint not an elder or that he alone is the elder, but he says appoint elders. Christian discipleship happens in a local church and it involves careful ministry, not just of a pastor, not simply one elder or one shepherd, but there is a plurality 
of leaders in a church. And biblically speaking, plurality is not just one alternative. So your, your church has a plurality, but it's okay for other churches to not have a plurality. Well, certainly within reason, there's church plants and church revitalizations, church startups, where you don't want to be too quick to appoint an elder, but the goal, the aim is to appoint multiple men to that work. And we see this is the case in all of the New Testament. So in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 15, we read this. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders. In Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, we read this in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders, again, plural, of the church. James, when he writes to the 12 tribes that are dispersed, it says here in verse 14 in chapter 5, if anyone's sick, then he must call for the elders, plural, of the church. All the churches in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia that Peter wrote to in 1 Peter 5, same thing, I exhort the elders, plural, among you. And so there's no reason to believe that this wasn't Paul's norm when he is planting churches to prioritize the preaching of the gospel, but that each of those churches have a multiplicity, a plurality of elders. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 23, it says, And when we had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, then commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. It is nearly impossible to read through your New Testament and not see that all the churches have a plurality of elders. This is the normal practice. And you think even about Jesus' words, where he's grieved. Why? Because Israel is like one that does not have a shepherd. A sheep without a shepherd, listen, are doomed. But it's not just that, because sheep with worthless shepherds are also doomed. So it's not just appointing any old person. There's qualifications. There's a standard that God gives that men are to meet. But listen, without qualified elders, who's going to lead? Without qualified elders, who's going to hold the firm and trustworthy word? Who's going to instruct in sound doctrine, as it says there in verse 9? Who's going to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine? Who's going to silence the insubordinate and the empty talkers and deceivers? Who's going to protect households from heresy and wolves in sheep's clothing? God's gift to the church is men to do these very things. And so, listen, it is absolutely necessary that church have shepherds to shepherd the church. Alexander Strock, who wrote Biblical Eldership, which is a standard for a lot of seminary students who are moving towards eldership, he writes this, the New Testament offers more instruction regarding elders than any other important church subjects, including the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Day, baptism, or spiritual gifts. You say, why? Why, why, why does he do that? Well, there are things that are open for discussion. Certainly there are. We can have discussion about the number of elders for a church, what's the ratio, what's healthy, what's not healthy, the age of the elder, elder terms. There's other things that we can discuss, but there's one thing that we are not going to compromise on, and that is the church needs a plurality of elders. 
So when churches are formed, this is the first order of business. This is what the New Testament teaches. They go and plant churches, and then right after, they appoint elders. Jesus, in his great commission, gave these instructions. And you know this verse very well. Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you, for behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We love the Great Commission, but what happens when the Great Commission is fulfilled and people do embrace the gospel and do repent and are converted and are regenerated? Well, they enter into the church. But who leads the church? It is the elders. You see, too many people, I think, focus in on this individual relationship with Jesus. It's a personal relationship with Jesus. It's, it's me and Jesus. When Jesus' desires that you be connected, cemented into a community of believers that have elders giving oversight of your souls. Look, the local church is Jesus' design for his people. And Paul says both here and in 1 Timothy that these local assemblies need elders to provide models of character, structure, oversight. And they're the ones that help foster a community of discipleship. Without sufficient spiritual and organizational leadership, churches suffer. And so elders are essential for the spiritual well-being of the church, which is why bringing Scott on is no small thing. It is a gift of God to us. Now, let's look at what an elder is. What is his office? What is his function? We talk about this in our members class, but for, for some of you, this might be new to you. The, the reality of these words are one and the same, elder, overseer, pastor, often used interchangeably, three different terms but communicating the same office. This is not three different offices. This is one different office. The elder typically speaks of a man's spiritual maturity. He is an elder. The pastor slash shepherd speaks of the man's role as he cares for the flock and tends the flock and feeds the flock. The overseer or bishop speaks to a man's role in managing the church. And we get words like Presbyterian, and we get Methodist, and we have all these different denominations. And part of the reason is because it comes from one's understanding of these terms. When we see these terms used, we see them used interchangeably. So look at Titus 1.5 there in our text. It says that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders. And then almost like he does a bait and switch, but he really doesn't. He says in verse 7, For the overseer must be beyond reproach and God's steward. And you say, well, wait a second, you switched words. Well, it's because it's one and the same. The use of the title elder, it's presbruteros in the Greek, and overseer, which is episkopos in the Greek, they're used interchangeably in Acts. Let me show you this, Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Paul says, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the presbruteros of the church. And then in verse 28, he says, be on guard for yourselves and for the flock 
among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, that is, episkopos, to shepherd, that is the, the verb for poyumen, that's to pastor the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And probably the best passage to see the interchangeableness of these words is in 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter writes, Therefore I exhort the elders, presbyteros, among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, to shepherd, there's that word again, poyumen, the flock of God among you, overseeing, not under compulsion, but willingly, according to God, and not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness. Again, you see these terms used interchangeably. Let me just see if I can communicate this to you. An overseer simply means one who observes. He's watching out. He's on the lookout. He's caring for people's souls by checking in, providing oversight. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 says this, to obey your leaders and submit to them. And why? Why should you obey and submit? Because they keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Scott and I have been in conversation. That's terrifying. To go before the Lord Jesus Christ and have to give an account for all the souls of our church. This is a weighty, weighty responsibility. A heavy duty. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says this, But we ask of you, brothers, that you know those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and that you regard them very highly in love because of their work and live in peace with one another. That is the overseer. The elder, I think, just simply depicts the honor and dignity of the office. The word elder is a Jewish Old Testament word, and we learn about that in Numbers and in Deuteronomy, lots of places. But the Old Testament elder, they're a specific category of individual Males who were given the responsibility to, to judge the people, to relay God's message. They led the Passover. They led other aspects of corporate worship. In the Old Testament, when you think about the elders of Israel, they're mature men. They're, they're men who are leading their families, head of their families. They're, they're able men. They're strong men. They fear God. They're men of integrity. They're men of truth. They're men full of the Holy Spirit. They're capable men of wisdom and discernment and experience. They're impartial. They're courageous. They intercede for others. They teach. They judge righteously. There's a high standard for an elder. And when you get to the New Testament, you say, well, what's the difference? Well, the New Testament amplifies this role of an elder. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. It says, the elders who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor at preaching the word and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So the New Testament elevates this role of an elder. So why again does the church need elders? Because elder leadership is God's divine design for the health of the church. 
God's divine design for the health of the church. And you say, what is an elder? He's one who fulfills an office of the pastor, shepherd, overseer, and elder. Point number three, who is an elder? Well, what kind of man does God require? Now, obviously, God desires, in fact, requires leaders in the church to be examples. We've already mentioned that Crete is full of immorality. When you study on Crete, you find out that they were not good people. In fact, there in verse 12 in Titus 1, the people of Crete were lewd, liars, and lazy. I mean, it says that in the text. Their own people admitted that they were evil beasts. And then look down at verse 16 of chapter 1. They profess to know God, but by their works they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work. And so listen, how are God's people to be holy, living in a community and an environment where this is prominence? Follow the example of the elders. Let's look at the elder pastor's character as Paul describes it. He begins by saying that an elder is supposed to be, needs to be above reproach. This is the overarching characteristic of a leader in the church. In other words, the overseer must not be vulnerable to attack, to criticism in regard to his Christian life in general, but specifically to all the characteristics that follow. You see, here in Titus, the word is blameless. And in both Titus and Timothy, the idea is just that of an untarnished reputation. My, my mentor, Pastor Scott Artavanis, says that an elder is a Teflon man. You say, what in the world's a Teflon man? You throw charges at him, and it just doesn't stick. Because that man's character doesn't accord with those accusations that are made. You think of Jesus. They called Jesus a blasphemer. They called him a bastard. They threw all kinds of slurs at Jesus, but no accusation stuck because he was a man of outstanding character. This doesn't mean that the elder is perfect. This doesn't mean that Scott or me are sinless. It just means that he conducts himself in such a way that no one can justifiably reproach him. They can't call him out because of immoral behavior, because there is not consistent, ongoing, immoral behavior. Will we sin? Absolutely we will. But it is not a pattern of our life. MacArthur says, Paul is not speaking of sinless perfection, but is declaring that leaders of Christ's church must have no sinful defect in their lives that could easily or justly call their, into question their virtue, their righteousness, or their godliness into question and indict them. There must be nothing in their lives to disqualify them as models of moral and spiritual character for believers under their care to emulate. An elder is to be like Jesus. You can make accusations, but they do not stick because of the character. So again, the elder is not perfect. He's a man who's irreproachable. He can't justifiably be judged as one who has patterns of sin. But now notice where the evaluation begins. Right there in the text, it begins all at home. It's in his home. It says here, he's to be the husband of one wife. 
And the question to you is, why do you think that Paul begins with this particular qualification? And the answer is because true spiritual leadership always, always, always begins in your home. You can fake who you are other places, but your wife who's sitting next to you, men, know exactly who you are, the language that you use, the way that you treat her and others and your kids. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4 says this, he's to lead his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. And then verse 5 says this, but if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? He needs to be, first and foremost, an upright, righteous, and godly leader in his home. And the same qualifications are for deacons as well in 1 Timothy 3, verse 12. Now, what does the husband of one wife mean? Well, when you, when you come to these qualifications, there's all kind of debate and interpretation on these texts. And I just want to go through a few of these to help you out. I do think that you solve a lot of problems if you just read the, the literal Greek. Where the literal Greek says, Minos gnoskos aner, one woman man. He's a one woman man. You say, why is that important? Well, because the Roman Catholic Church, we have not been picking on Roman Catholics lately, but our time in Mary, and I've heard from some of you, I didn't know that the Roman Catholic Church taught that. Well, they have an allegorical interpretation of this text. And they use that to justify the fact that the pastorate, the people who go into this office, must remain celibate. And so you can see the consequences. If they're denying something that the Lord doesn't deny, then you enter into a whole lot of trouble. But they interpret this text, and they say that the man of one wife means that the man is married to the church. The church is the wife. And if your hermeneutic allows for that kind of figurative speech, then you can look at the rest of the qualifications and say, well, Paul wasn't really talking about a drunkard. But Paul, Paul wasn't really talking about being violent or greedy. And you can allegorize those things. But the problem with the interpretation is also there in verse 6. Look there at the text. If the wife is the church, then who are the children? Who, who, who are the children in that case? I think that doesn't square. Does the husband of one wife mean that a man cannot be remarried after the death of a spouse? That is another question that often arises. Some take the husband of one wife to mean that if you're a widower, you have to remain unmarried and you can never advance to a place of leadership in the church. But we know from the rest of Scripture that Paul legitimizes being remarried if a spouse dies. We see that in Romans chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and 1 Timothy chapter 5. What about, does the husband of one wife mean that a man has to be single? Is this requiring that a man be married if he is to be an elder in the church? And I would just say, if that's what Paul wanted to communicate, he would have just said that. But he doesn't. He doesn't say the husband of a wife, but the husband of one wife. And let's not forget that the guy who's writing this is actually single. And there's another great pastor who was also single, and his name is Jesus. If we take husband of one wife to mean that an elder must be married, then logically we have to be consistent. So that, again, when we go down to verse 6 and we see that he has to also have faithful children, 
If you have one child, you can't be an elder because the text says children. And so we have to think critically about what the text is actually saying. Paul would be guilty of a double standard since both he and probably Timothy were both unmarried, but they were elders, pastors in the church. Does husband of one wife mean that he can't be divorced? There are some who hold a strong stance and say, it doesn't matter if you um, are currently married, but if you previously had a divorce, whether you were saved or not, you are disqualified. And people hold to strong views like that. Of course, you need wisdom and prudence in order to determine the viability of someone's fitness, but I don't think that that is what he is saying. Others still will argue that this is a prohibition against polygamy. And they say, well, you just can't have multiple wives. That's what it's saying. Uh, And you say, well, who believes that? Well, a guy by the name of John Calvin, modern scholar like D.A. Carson, they, they put forward this idea that it's talking about polygamy. We can go on. But what does the husband of one wife actually mean? I think there's a higher standard than all of those things. If we're going to read this literally, a one-woman man, I think it makes perfect sense that an elder, listen to this, needs to be singularly devoted to his wife. He's faithful to her in head, in habits, in heart. An overseer must be faithful to the wife he has. That's what the text is saying. He's not a man with wandering eyes. He doesn't spend time on the internet looking at pornography. He's not daydreaming about being married to another woman. In his very soul, he would rather die than cheat on his wife. He is that committed to his wife. He is a one-woman man. And he can't be accused. He doesn't have lots of women friends, but he is above reproach. Listen, there are a lot of men who are married to one man, but they're not a one-woman man. And this is what Paul is warning against. Men, if you have a desire to be an elder in a church, you will be singularly devoted to your wife, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And if not, you are not fit to lead in the church. A faithful husband needs to uphold God's ordained covenant of marriage Because what he's representing is Christ's love for the church. Christ is singular in his devotion for his love to his precious bride. And so, brothers, listen, I'm not trying to dissuade you from this. I'm trying to call you to this. And this qualification is not like, well, I don't want a desire to be an elder, so I guess I don't have to obey that. No, this is for you too. Elder or not, brothers, how you love your wife, speak to your wife, think about your wife, means everything. It means everything. Now, although there's various interpretations about what that means, I think we have some clarity, but there's also various interpretations about faithful children. And again, this is something that we need to talk about because if you have a different translation, here it might say, those who have children who believe. Other translations might say having faithful children. Other translations might say trusting, believing, or believers. And so with such a wide range of interpretations and translations, what does this mean? Does this mean that you cannot be an elder unless your kids are Christians? Some people hold to that view. 
You cannot be an elder unless your children are Christians, in which case the vast majority of pastors are disqualified because kids aren't born Christians. And so if you have a toddler, a baby, you cannot be a pastor in that view. But that raises a whole lot of questions. So is there an age of accountability? If a child never believes, will the father never be able to be an elder? What about adult children? What about children who are no longer living in the home? Does this apply to adopted children? If they have multiple children, what's the percentage? Is it if they've got seven kids, if six kids are believers and one is not, does that mean he can't be an elder? I think the Legacy Standard Bible gets this right. It reads, faithful children. You see, the, the overseer's qualification to lead, it precedes his ability to lead his natural flock, which is his household. So a man cannot shepherd his own family. If he can't shepherd his family, he doesn't have any business shepherding the church. But I don't think there is a requirement that every child needs to be a Christian in order for him to serve as an elder. Listen to what John MacArthur says. He says, Children should be living in harmony with their father's example and instruction. This does not mean that the pastor's children will not have their moments. All of our kids have their moments, don't they? Just like we do. He says, however, it does demand that the overall pattern of their behavior not be an embarrassment to the church, a stumbling block for their father's ministry, or a pattern of contradiction regarding the Christian faith. And Alexander Strzok elaborates on this even more, and I like what he says. He, he says this, the contrast made is not between believing and unbelieving children, but between obedient, respectful children and lawless, uncontrolled children. The strong terms dissipation or rebellion stress the children's behavior and not their eternal state. A faithful child, he continues, is obedient and submissive to the father. He says it's the same concept as a faithful servant who's considered to be faithful because he obeys or she obeys the master. And when you look at the passage in 1 Timothy 3, 4, it states that the prospective elder must keep his children under control with all dignity. I think that's what it's talking about. Alexander Strzok continues in the passage here in Titus, the qualification is stated in the positive form. The elder must have children who are trustworthy and dutiful. Those who interpret this qualification to mean that an elder must have believing children place an impossible burden upon the father. Even the best Christian fathers cannot guarantee that their children will believe. Salvation, he says, is a supernatural act of God. God, not good parents, although they are certainly used of God, ultimately bring kids to salvation. Listen, if you're listening to this and you're saying, Dom, I, I have an aspiration to be an elder someday. I have a desire to, to be a leader in the church, to serve my church faithfully, to be an example of moral character to the church. I just want to read to you a couple of things that a, a fellow pastor of mine who wrote the book, Church Elders, he listed some questions if you're thinking about becoming an elder one of these days. He says, are your children well-behaved in their home or are they out of control? He says, are you interacting with your children at home about God's word and the gospel? 
Is it a foreign thing for your kids to see their daddy open up the Bible and lead in family devotions? Or are your children exacerbated by either your excessive harshness or deficient engagement? He asked, is the atmosphere of your home predominantly nurturing and orderly, or is it toxic and chaotic? Once again, if we're thinking about shepherding the flock, we must have things tightened up at home. Now, Paul will go on to list the qualifications, and we're going to fly through these. Each of these can be a separate sermon. I told my wife, hey, I'm cutting this page and this page and this page and this page. Like 20 pages of notes I had to cut down because it's so good. Because what the qualifications here represents is not just a man, but the perfect man, Jesus. Each of these qualifications, the reason why elders are so important is because God's gift to the church is himself. And he gives himself through his people to lead the church. But let's take a look at these. There are 17 total qualifications. In 1 Timothy 3, there's 15. And these lists, they parallel each other. But I just want to do a quick overview of these qualifications. Paul tells us that these character qualities in verses 7 through 9 are things that a man is not supposed to be, and then the things that they must be in verse 9. Okay, so what an elder must not be. Five disqualifying characteristics. He must not be self-willed. Self-willed. That word describes one who is stubborn and arrogant. One commentator said that the man who um, obstinately maintains his own opinion or asserts his own rights and is reckless of his rights, feelings, and interest of others. So listen, you can't have a church leader who is self-serving. You can't have a church leader who is proud. That is completely antithetical to someone who is supposed to be serving God's people. That very term, servant or steward or slave, presupposes that he's selfless as he's giving his life to the church. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 4.1, Let a man consider us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We can't have self-interested, arrogant men leading the church. Well, not only that, but it says he must not be quick-tempered. Have you guys seen that movie, Inside Out? This is what I think of, the angry dude who just boiling over. We can't have angry men as shepherds for our church. The guy who goes from zero to 100 in the blink of an eye. Proverbs chapter 22 says this in verse 24, do not, be, do not befriend a man of anger and do not come along with a man of great wrath lest you learn his ways and take on a snare against your soul. Angry men are really good disciplers of younger angry men. And so if we have someone leading the church, we can't have someone with destructive anger. Proverbs 29, verse 22 says, The angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. No, instead, the elders are to be what it says in 1 Timothy 3, 3, considerate and peaceable. Titus 3, 2, they're to be gentle, 
They're to show perfect courtesy toward people. Well, what else must a man not be? He must not be, look at the text, a drunkard, not addicted to wine. He's not controlled by alcohol. He doesn't use it in excess. Well, we're not going to say that there's absolutely no alcohol. That's not what the scriptures say. But he's not known to always be around alcohol. What else? He must not be violent. That word is a striker. The NASB translates this pugnacious, but I don't think you call anyone pugnacious. Maybe you do if you're into like literature and have a high vocabulary. What does that mean? A pugilist is a boxer. Someone who wants to settle disagreements by taking it outside. I had a friend who, he was, he was an acquaintance, who always wanted to settle things by taking it outside. You disagree with him, let's take it outside. That's how he solved his issues. Can you imagine God's steward conducting himself like, like that in the church? And I don't think Paul is just talking about throwing blows. I think he's talking about verbal bullies as well. People who have the kind of attitude and air about them that they want to dominate you. Paul says that doesn't, that doesn't fly for an elder in the church. Instead, he needs to counsel people, listen to people, be approachable for people. He can't be a fighter. Well, what else does it say? It says he must not be greedy for gain, not fond of sordid gain. And I think this is a scary one because as you have opportunity to disciple others, people come to you and confess things like lust, and they confess things about their mouth. But very rarely, at least in my experience, has someone come and confess to their greed or covetousness. We don't often equate this particular sin with the list of real serious sins. But let me just remind you, in Ephesians 5.5, 5, we read this. For this you know with certainty that no one sexually immoral or impure or greedy who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So according to Paul, he says greedy people are idolaters, and that is a big deal. We cannot have elders in the role of leadership who are in love with money. You say, well, how do you know if you're idolizing money? Are you excessively and immoderately desirous of acquiring wealth? Are you looking for the next big thing? Do you find that you're discontent and always want more and more and more? It's got to be newer. It's got to be better. It's got to be bigger. Paul tells Titus, this kind of man cannot be an overseer in the church. Now, beginning there in verse 8, Paul transitions with a strong but. These are all the things that he must not be, but what must he be? And he lists seven virtues. Before we just list those, I think if we look at the things he's not to be, you can just look at the contrast. So if he's not to be proud, he must be humble. Amen? If he's not to be quick-tempered, he must be slow to anger. If he's not to be a drunkard, he must be sober-minded. If he's not to be greedy, he must be free from the love of money. But this is what Paul says the elder should be hospitable, stranger-loving, not just inviting the homies to the house, not just inviting the ladies over for the tea party and your boy's birthday party, stranger-loving, people that you don't know, people that won't invite you back. That's what it's saying. Not only is stranger-loving, but a lover of good, 
self-controlled. He's to be temperate, dignified, sensible, upright, which means just, holy, which is devout, and disciplined, self-controlled. That word right there just means that he is in power and in power of himself. And that's the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? We want elders, leaders to be full of the Spirit, gentle, self-controlled. And then he completes the picture there in verse 9. Look at it with me. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to reprove those who contradict. This is the picture of an elder. Let me conclude with Dr. MacArthur who writes this, God does not call all elders to be entrepreneurs, men who begin ministries and build them, nor does he call all elders to be producers, men who accomplish a great amount of work in the church, although those are worthy things. Neither does he call all of them to be managers, adept at mobilizing others in the Lord's service, although that too is a worthy thing. The Lord does, however, call all elders to be godly leaders, men who by their exemplary lives as well as their sound teaching and preaching set a pattern of virtue and devotion to the Lord for other believers to follow. And church, let me just say this. I am so thankful that God has raised up Scott Hummer to join us in shepherding this flock. It is a gift of God. Before the foundation of the world, he appointed Scott to come and join the elder team. And so we want to celebrate that. And so I like to call the band up. I like to call Scott up. I like to call the under shepherds forward as we lay our hands on Brother Scott and we pray for him and we sing together. You say, well, who are these other men who are coming up here? Well, part of appointing elders is giving men opportunities to use their gifting, to see them in ministry, to see them serving, to get them on teaching platforms. And so all these men have joined us. We meet every day, basically. We're reading the scripture together. We meet um, for elder meetings every week, in person, once a month, uh, and more than that, really. But we're so thankful for Scott, and we want you to join us as we pray and invite him in to this appointment, which is a holy calling. Let's pray. Father, this is our brother. He has served here even before I was here, a stint here at First Baptist Seaside, giving himself faithful to ministry. God, and then coming back as a gift to this church. Lord, he's proved himself. He's done the work of eldering already, from counseling to teaching the scripture, to praying for our people, to guarding sound doctrine, to set an example of what it means to be a godly man, to be a godly husband, to be a godly father. Oh Lord, we're so grateful for Scott Hummer, for his gifting, and for this season of time that we have to learn from him and follow in his footsteps. Lord, he is just a man. He is a weak man apart from your strength. He is a sinful man who has been forgiven fully and faithfully and justified by the blood of Christ. 
And so our prayer, Lord, as he continues to walk alongside us and serve us with humility and gentleness and patience, is that he be full of the Spirit, that he not depend on his own strength and his own intellect and his own abilities and his own gifts, but, Lord, that he be constantly abiding in you, walking near to you, and exemplifying what it means to be a Christ-like man who leads Christ's precious bride, the church. We commit him to you, and we're thankful for him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.